You are freer than you think. It's like the ultimate form of freedom. You expound upon that freedom to develop on this planet. True freedom comes from within. It's the ability. Thinking to myself, I can help you or I can destroy you. Man is a two-time felon. I work really hard and I've been, a, I've been a life learner. When things are feeling tough, let yourself be surprised. The world favors risk-taking. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Welcome back to the Freedom Pact podcast and today on the show I am joined by Brett Weinstein for his third appearance on the Freedom Pact podcast. Brett is an evolutionary biologist, an author and podcaster. You may know him from his podcast, The Dark Horse Podcast, in which he co-hosts with his wife Heather. He also co-wrote the book A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, also with his wife Heather, who we have had on this show to discuss that book before. As I said, this is Brett's third appearance on the show today, making him our most regular guest to date. And it was a really enjoyable conversation. We spoke a little bit about the book. We spoke about Joe Rogan and Spotify controversy. We also spoke about free speech, the future of the intellectual dark web, and so much more. It is always a pleasure to host Brett on the Freedom Pact. He is a friend of the show, and I'm sure will continue to come back as a regular on this program. So before we dive into the episode, if I could just remind you guys that a quick way you can help the show is by leaving us a five-star rating on Spotify or iTunes. That really helps us with the visibility of the show. And also these podcasts, including this one, are available in video format over on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash freedom pact. Anyway, let's get right into today's episode with Brett Weinstein. Well, for the third time, I welcome Brett Weinstein back to the Freedom Pack podcast. Brett, it's such a pleasure to have you on again. Good to see you, my friend. So this is the third time we've done this now. Um, I've also hosted your your wonderful wife, Heather. We've even had the young Zev on. Um, so my first question is, where was my invite to the Weinstein family Christmas? <laughs> well, there was no Weinstein family Christmas for a number of different reasons, uh, among them COVID. But anyway, yeah, uh, wouldn't it be lovely if we could gather that way uh, in person and all? Um, maybe one day. Well, it, yeah, it's great to have you back. Obviously, you are the first guest we've had to do three appearances on the podcast. So absolute pleasure. Always a fan favorite. Does that um, make me a regular? I'd love to. Con- yeah, I would consider you a regular with your most regular guest. So uh yeah, you're setting records here. Awesome. Well, a lot of people consider me irregular, so you know <laughs> it's good to be regular somewhere. Well, when I mentioned in our newsletter you were coming on, we were hit with all these topics that people wanted me to ask you about. But I'd love to start and just, obviously, I spoke to Heather about the book. I'd love to bring the book up again, A Hunter-Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century. I have it in front of me here. Fantastic book. I encourage everyone to check it out. So let's start there then. In the world today, we like to think we're, you know, we're special, but what opportunities, what dilemmas do we face today that the original people of the new world could also relate to if they could see what was going on right now? Yeah, interesting question. The the central theme of the book is really something that Heather and I call hypernovelty. And hypernovelty, effectively, our argument is that human beings are specialized 
uh, to adapt to change. All creatures adapt. Human beings are specialized on switching between niches. That's what we do that makes us uh, unique. And that means that we have a toolkit for altering our relationship with the world we find ourselves in that is also quite special. And it involves what we argue is a, uh, an oscillation between two different modes, a conscious mode in which we innovate things and a cultural mode in which we take things that we have innovated and we uh, transmit them so that they can be operationalized and refined by each new generation. So that's the basic uh, way that human beings function relative to novel circumstances. But our argument in the book is that we are in a novelly novel circumstance, that many ancestors would have run into circumstances where they had to figure out how to survive in a new habitat, but no ancestor, not any ancestor that uh, survived to leave descendants would have faced what we face, which is a situation in which each generation is confronted with a world that its immediate ancestors knew nothing about. And that is causing us to be effectively sick at many different levels. We are physiologically sick. We are psychologically unwell. We are unhealthy uh, socially, politically, and in every other regard, because we have crossed a threshold. And that threshold, the place where hypernovelty kicks in, is the place where you are not even faced with the same world that you grew up in, right? It, it should be, I think, fairly apparent to people that childhood is about preparing one for the adult world. And if the world in which you were a child is not the same world in which you are expected to make your way as an adult, you will be ill-prepared, and, and we all are. Um, so that's the, that's the hazard. And I, I guess the direct answer to your question is that many ancestors would have faced a new world and uh, many of them would have failed to rise to that challenge, but enough of them succeeded in rising to the challenge of a brand new world that um, humans have diversified in the way we know them. Uh, but this is an, a new kind of challenge and it is one that we must rein in because it, uh, it has within it the seeds of our undoing. When I first made my way through this book, I kept getting little parallels, little flashbacks to another book uh, by Neil Oliver. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Neil and his sure. work. He wrote a fantastic book called Wisdom of the Ancients. And in that book, he he gives these beautiful, beautiful stories. Um, and he, there's this one story about uh, Neanderthals site where they found evidence of a a Neanderthal funeral where the remains were um, covered with flowers and it was almost like a ceremony. And his argument being that, you know, love and grief are, you know, emotions, they're things that are embedded into our very human nature. Do you think that love, grief, all these emotions, are, are they part of what makes us human? Are they built into our human nature? Yes. Uh, I have argued, I must tell you, I'm not, 100% certain whether it is in our book or not, but um, I have argued that grief is the downside of love, that love is a very special property. It is not utterly unique to humans, but it is certainly elaborated in a unique way in humans, and that grief is the inevitable cost that comes with it, that in effect, love allows us 
to become partnered with each other in a, in a remarkable way. And what that means is that when someone disappears from the partnership, especially if someone disappears unexpectedly, if someone dies who you, you thought would be around, that you effectively have to unwire the, uh, the role that they played because they won't be there to do the job. And, and, and we effectively edit their memory down to a model of them, to a, a kind of an emulation, which we then carry with us. And, you know, sometimes when, when someone I know has lost someone important to them, it's always delicate to know what, what you say to a person in such a circumstance. And when we've been in those circumstances, it's of course, you know, difficult to know what we want to hear, but, um, but I do think that there's some truth to this that is worth, it's worth um, understanding, which is that in some sense, the dead, uh, the ones who are important to us, they continue to live on and they, in effect, look through our eyes, right? It's not the full person, but uh, it is an important component to the extent that we know somebody and we know what they would think about something that they are, they are effectively uh, brought on board. And I don't know, for me, at least, I find that comforting. The very, I think it's the very last sentence of the book. Um, you say the, the problem is evolutionary, so is the solution. I wonder if we could just expand on that. Sure. So human beings are not unique in being problem solvers. Selection has effectively burdened all creatures with a program to, uh, to tighten up their mode of interacting with the world. When we're talking about a single-celled organism or, or a complex animal, um, there is a strong bias to not waste things that are limited, like time and energy and uh, resources. And what that means is that when you get um, consciousness and uh, innovative intelligence on, on board with a creature, as we have in human beings, that there is a kind of obsession that emerges with looking at all of the little annoyances of life and trying to imagine ways in which they might be simplified away. And so we've gotten very good at this. And if you look around your own life, you will basically, you know, from one end of the house to the other, you will see all kinds of things that someone came up with to streamline some part of life. And uh, that is in general, a very good thing, because in effect, a calorie saved is a calorie found, right? They are equivalent, right? If you cannot waste energy, uh, that is as good as finding more energy. So to the extent that there is an ecological game to be played where our ancestors have been uh, energy and resource limited and they have learned to conserve these things and use them very efficiently, that's good. But what it means is that we also may end up looking at problems that shouldn't be solved because the solution will in fact be more problematic than the problem itself was. And we as human beings are not in the same way limited by calories and uh, nutrients in the way our ancestors were. So that obsession with being more efficient may actually be at odds with our, our best values, the ones that are really uh, unique to our species. So in any case, what, what I would say in short is we have built a world that is extremely fragile and dangerous. It is 
sitting at a precipice effectively. And the reason that it is sitting as a, at a precipice is because so many ancestors came up with so many solutions to so many problems and nobody was in a position to even imagine what the interrelationship between all of those solutions would look like. And it has created a dangerous, a, a dangerous world. And when we say that the solution is also evolutionary, what we mean is that there is this built-in um, program that we argue allows human beings to solve novel problems. The problem of the complexity and the interrelatedness and the uh, powerfulness of the tools with which our world is constructed, that problem is novel. And what it means is that this is actually the moment at which human beings should trigger this program for recognizing we are in a new world. It demands some new approach that none of us can spell out from here. And we should be teaming up and parallel processing consciously the nature of the problem and the possible solutions. And, um, you know, that's a, that's a process that is fraught with a certain amount of danger, but it's also uh, a tremendously hopeful process because I think, you know, I, if one, if your friend group is anything like mine, there is a general sense that we have found ourselves somewhere in chaos. Very few people are feeling secure, feeling like the world is in a good, healthy state. Um, everybody is sensing that something has gone awry. We differ over what it is, but um, were we to collectively at least recognize, hey, something is off. Here are the values that are important to us, and we need to retool in some way to protect those values because they're all in jeopardy. That would be uh, a momentous, a momentous watershed moment. I think a lot of people, as you mentioned, they think that when they think about the the IDW, the intellectual dark web, um, what is it with this intellectual dark web? How do you view? What is it like? Is there an inner dialogue in there at all? Is there are there conversations happening that aren't maybe on? podcast platforms in search of a greater truth, in search of a greater purpose? Well, I don't know how to answer that question. I think in many ways, to the extent that there was some understanding of, you know, what the bounds of the IDW were, COVID has thrown an incredible monkey wrench into it. And while the, the opportunity to upgrade you know, for IDW 2.0 to have emerged in light of COVID, that does not seem to be what has happened, at least so far. So I guess I'm hopeful that there will be a recognition. But so far, we have discovered, I think, in some sense, the limits of, um, of that modality. And, you know, let us hope that something very positive emerges from that but uh, it, it's been an interesting lesson yeah it is certainly changing i think the first time you came on here we talked about the idw and you were saying how it was this um people were drawn to it these people who didn't want to hear just bullshit anymore they wanted to find truth they wanted to find reason but as you said covid is is thrown quite the spanner in the works and i know you've predicted a lot of uh, a lot of things on this podcast in the past that have come true, but where do you see, I know what you hope, but where do you see the future of the IDW with 
you know, there are there have been conflicts. Last time you were on the show, you spoke about um, a disagreement between yourself and Sam Harris, and there seem to be these little storylines built in. Where do you see the future of the IDW landing? Well, it depends. It depends what happens next. Uh, my feeling is we are reaching a point in the COVID narrative where we could actually do a full accounting, and we could look back and we say we could say, okay who had what right, who had what wrong, and what does that say about the way disagreements unfolded in light of COVID? And if we did that openly and honestly, it could be a tremendous, um, a tremendous moment, right? But the problem is so much has been loaded into the process of uh, what has been called sense-making that I find it hard to imagine that we're going to have that, that honest reckoning. I think most people will not, even uh, within the IDW, there are people who will not be likely to face uh, the fact that they came out very, very aggressively for perspectives that ultimately turned out to be false and that they um, you know, called other people's credibility into question and the like. Right. That's going to be it will be wonderful if there is a full reckoning. And I hope there is. Um, but I would expect that uh, the the features that make human beings uh, rationalize will uh, they are at least a major danger to that process. Yeah, I mean, I for sure hope so. I think there are maybe little glimpses of it. I mean, I haven't checked out the episode yet, but I saw uh, Sam and Jordan Peterson recorded a podcast together recently. So these little conversations, let's hope that we do build to that sort of future you were alluding to there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I hope, I hope they do, but let's just say the problem is I believe some people went back on the implicit agreement at the base of what IDW was, which is that in effect, we are better off if we use the, tools at our disposal and attempt to make sense and do so in a way that is transparent. And we don't do things like accuse each other of causing harm to the world for simply trying to think. Well, one of the big topics of debate, obviously we hear this word, I think I hear it every day now is misinformation to the point where I think we all have a different idea of what that means. At this point in time, how do we define the word misinformation? Uh, well, if you're talking about with respect to COVID, I would say anybody who uses that term in earnest is suspect. And the reason that I say that is that you have experts, people who are trained in these topics, and they disagree over what the evidence is, and they disagree over what it implies. Now, what that tells you is that no one is in a position to say, this truth is so secure that those who say otherwise are guilty of spreading misinformation. What you have is a leap, a, a rush and a strong arming towards a false consensus that then allows those who are party to it to stigmatize those who are uh, dissenters 
And that is completely unnatural. The natural thing in science is for consensus to emerge as evidence resolves a question. And the rush to consensus with the excuse that we are rushing to consensus because lives are on the line, lives are frequently on the line. And the fact is those who have rushed to consensus, uh, if they are incorrect, are um, placing us in danger and they are blocking the normal process through which a model that was crude to begin with would improve, right? You can't start with the consensus. So I would say the word misinformation in this case is a red flag and I am troubled by anyone who is using it. Even worse, we learned earlier this week that the Biden administration has linked the word misinformation with terrorism. Now, many people will look at the document in which, <clears throat> in which they make this connection and find the connection too tepid to worry about, but that is a terrible error because not only is misinformation now a weaponized term used to blunt the process through which we normally make better sense over time, but the word terrorism is effectively a magical term. In the United States, the term terrorism, when it is applied to something, changes the nature of the rights of the people to whom the term has been applied. And so anytime, especially the federal government, especially the executive branch, uses that term, they are effectively telling you that they are availing themselves of special rights that you will not know in what way those rights play out, because one of the rights that the federal government takes is the right to not be transparent about what they are doing. And so we have to wonder, why are we seeing these terms, misinformation, which is clearly being abused and weaponized, connected to the term terrorism? That has to do with uh, an abuse of power. Well, on that topic, obviously, as well, the story continues to unfold. By the time this is, the story may be something completely different, but we've seen the, the Spotify and Joe Rogan uh, back and forth originally. Um, you know, they stood by him. They sort of stood for free speech. Everyone was singing the praises of Spotify as this bastion of free speech. Then a couple of days later, some episodes go missing. It's hard to know who to trust anymore, what's right. What do you current, from what the picture we currently have, where do you stand on this Spotify free speech argument? Do you think that they are, holding up free speech, or do you think that they are holding it back? I'm very disappointed with Spotify, and I don't know what took place on the inside except for this letter that the, the CEO put out. But that letter indicates that there is a struggle inter internal to Spotify and that effectively those who know better are making concessions to those who uh, demand the equivalent of censorship. So uh, I think we have seen the cracks in that edifice and we should be worried. And I think one of the things that Heather and I say on our podcast somewhat regularly is that zero is a special number. And what that means is that a world in which you have a platform, even a single one in which free speech is the standard is a very different world than one in which you have no platforms in which that's the case. And what we keep seeing 
is that platforms plug into, even if they are started with the intention, the explicit intention of protecting the free exchange of ideas, they almost inevitably end up plugging into the world of VC capital or going public and therefore being subject to uh, the will of the market. And by plugging into those forces, effectively the same evolutionary dynamics ensue and leverage is in the hands of people who, uh, I, I wish there were nicer terms, but um, who stupidly believe that because at the moment they have the power to censor things they don't want to hear, that censorship is a good idea, not understanding that those tools will eventually be turned on them. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm quite concerned. I think the whole episode with, with Joe and Spotify indicates that we are perilously close to a world in which uh, the forces that want to shout misinformation are in a position to blunt the process through which we get smarter. Yeah, well, one of the things I, I was quite shocked by, disappointed, um, obviously when Joe first came out with his, his reaction videos, you had all these celebrities showing their support. I mean, The Rock was commenting on on the video saying, you know, keep fighting the good fight almost. And and then a couple of days later, I think it was maybe one tweet from from Don Winslow, The Rock has, has switched the narrative. And it reminded me of something you said before about how cancel culture works and it's this army of the dead almost where you know if you're eaten by the army of the dead you become it um what what do you think the motive is on you know someone like the rock who just would just switch that narrative so quick over something so minute and someone who whose past isn't so squeaky clean himself well um i didn't track the issue with the rock so i can't speak Mm. to it specifically But I can say people are responding to incentives local to their lives. Even very good people are doing this. As much as we would like people to do the right thing globally, it is, you know, none of us can be expected um, to to put the well-being of our families aside entirely in order to do the right thing for the world, for example. So... I don't know what the internal motivations were there, but I can say that local calculations are being used to corral us, right? Joe made calculations too. Now, I don't know exactly what they were, but I will say Joe is as decent a human being as I know. And I think that worked against him. I think Joe did things that he shouldn't have done from the point of view uh, of the long-term well-being of everything, because frankly, the pressure of being accused of horrible things is it's a weight that one carries around, even if you know, it's not right. Um, But I I don't, I don't know why the rock did what he did, but I can say it looks a lot like, you know, as you allude to with the, the issue of the army of the dead, the game theory for the individual causes people to do things that, globally speaking are terrible it's it's a collective action problem in disguise do you think that we'll see this pattern emerge of companies like rumble come out and offer these giant paydays and do you think that there's a lot of opportunity and do you think we will see a lot of offers like that and and companies i mean we saw uh getter 
originally the social media take you know take advantage of what's going on and offer an alternative we see something like rumble now with joe rogan do you see more platforms like this popping up well i think there's a game theory problem that says yes you will see them no they will not be the solution to the problem they can't be and there are various reasons for that one of them is that when a platform pops up and it says we're going to be the solution to that censorship problem but it doesn't have first mover advantage or the network effects of the main platform that effectively what you get is a migration of people who are um, being demonized either because they're demons or because they're dissidents being portrayed as demons. And so the problem is, do you really want a platform in which your dissidents are grouped with your demons? That makes your dissidents look like demons. You don't want that. What we need is a platform where the public is and the dissidents are present. And if that means we have to accept the demons, then so be it. I mean, up to the limit of the law, let's say. But um, in any case, you're either going to get the problem where you have a stigma of a platform where there is uh, respect for the free exchange of ideas because of who has landed there, who needs that protection. Um, or you're going to get uh, financial incentives causing things like Spotify that frankly should be standing up to the mob to be responsive to it because frankly the mob exists uh, in multiple forms even within the company. And we need a solution that builds with this in mind so that it never has to plug into the dynamics that cause the failure. Well, lastly, on, on the Rogan situation, then I know you're one of you know, the most vocal defenders of, of Joe on, on Twitter. Um, you often use the hashtag, thank you, Joe Rogan. Do you think he is currently one of the most important figures of our time? There's no question that he is one of the most important voices of our time. Now, I do have a caveat. It's a delicate one, because I believe if anybody can handle the responsibility of that level of voice, and probably... It's too much for anyone, but if anyone can handle it, I believe that Joe can. He's, he's that decent and uh, that open. But the problem is you have to understand why Joe has that huge platform. And I'm not saying Joe isn't uh, excellent at what he does, but there's an artificial aspect to it as well, which is the tools that power has at its disposal at this moment to shut down voices that it finds troubling are extreme. And what that means is that it keeps shutting down other people, which means that those who are looking for such a voice are driven to the smaller number of voices that still exist, people who have managed to resist uh, the force that would cancel them. And so I guess the point is one of the things that Joe has is incredible immunity to cancellation. And that incredible immunity to cancellation means that effectively he has acquired the audience that would otherwise have landed with people who, whose names we may not even know because they've been, they've been dealt with. Um, so that, that is a problem in and of itself. And it creates a major hazard even for Joe, which is that, you know, were Joe one of 10 such voices, then the value of canceling Joe would be small. Right. If you cancel one of 10 voices, it has very little impact on the conversation. And so because Joe is so singular, 
he is also singularly targeted. And we may, in this last episode, have finally found uh, a force powerful enough, I won't say to cancel Joe, but um, to, to affect the way he plays the game such that we are all, we are all impacted with respect to what we have access to. A question I've been dying to ask you since we last spoke. Um, so I'm really in no position myself to be cancelled or or uh, censored, but I've seen on my own channel, on my own platform, where I may have a video that's about a certain topic and it's trending far, far better than you know it, it the recent videos. And all of a sudden, I'll notice it'll maybe disappear from the the top searches on. And even if you type in the exact video name, you won't be able to find it. Um, you know, I've had moments where the, the views have actually gone down rather than up, which I don't know what, how that makes sense. But so, and that's a stress to me on just a small scale, but for someone like yourself who operates something as big as, as Dark Horse, what is it like being censored and how have you navigated that? If that is even, you know, something you can begin to explain. Yeah, it's a good question. I think you know, Joe has a policy. He doesn't look at the comments. It's not to see, say he never sees a comment, but he doesn't look at the comments. And there's a reason for that. And that's because it would be almost impossible to take that information in and process the part one odyssey with, without processing the part that's counterproductive. I would say I have a something like this policy with respect to the shenanigans that exist inside the platforms that adjust things like the algorithms that direct people towards or away from, from our videos. I can't pay terribly close attention, right? I have to look at something outside that and I have to judge whether or not the people I meet when I travel, whether the uh, comments that I see and I do look at comments, not all of them, but I look at them, whether those indicate that the messages that we are attempting to put out are actually reaching people. And, you know, if I look at our um, YouTube numbers, they've been utterly stagnant and they've been stagnant since YouTube demonetized our channel, which was a tremendous financial hit for the family. It knocked out more than half of our income in a matter of an hour. Um, but Basically, I think the thing is you need some kind of a, a North Star or a stand-in for it. And if you, it's really rather like what happens to the platforms when they plug too directly into the market. If you plug too directly into their algorithm and you start monitoring what it says about your effect, it'll drive you crazy. And maybe that's part of the purpose. Um, so one needs a thick skin and one needs to find proxies that indicate something about your effect in the world that are not under the control of those who would prefer to declare you uh, a source of misinformation and drive you into the sea. What does, obviously you mentioned there that you had the monetization just taken from, from under you with no real warning, no real time to be prepared. Again, I don't think people realize the, the financial impact that that has on people, as you mentioned, this is absolutely devastating. Where, 
is the future of Dark Horse. Are you optimistic about the future? Where do you see this project going? Um, I'm optimistic. We, we've survived this long. YouTube, you know, let's put it this way. YouTube tried to... I don't want to overdraw it because mm. it's hard to put precise words on, but I believe they tried to pay us to self-censor. And the form that that took is they demonetized us, which we couldn't help but notice suddenly half the family income is, is gone. And they gave us a path to regaining it, which was effectively agree not to talk about certain things. And we didn't take it and they have refused to remonetize us. And that's the state of things. But what happened then is that our audience rallied and they weren't able to approach the kind of uh, resources that YouTube had been, uh, had been paying us or, and it, you know, Dark Horse was rapidly growing. So yeah. the amount of money that we lost was not something that had been longstanding. It was something that had just uh, begun to skyrocket. Um, but our audience rallied and they've kept us on the air and they've effectively freed us from YouTube's control. And let us hope that people understand where their interests lie, that to the extent you know, that we get dozens of contacts a week telling us, hey, I'm out here somewhere in the world and your podcast is a reality check for me and I don't know where I'd be without it. To the extent that it's providing that service, it would be bad for people. I think it would be even psychologically bad for many people if it suddenly disappeared. And what that means is that you need to think about not letting it happen. You don't want to just gamble on the fact that because it's been on that it will continue to be on. What happened to Joe is a cautionary tale. Even, even the most uncancelable might be subject to some kind of uh, dynamics based on what platform they're on or what kind of nonsense can be stirred up around them. So uh, people need to be more active. They need to, they need to protect that, which is, uh, is actually working in their interests. I'm not saying that money is your, your primary goal with Dark Horse, but for anyone listening now who's thinking, or they know that their view on YouTube isn't directly going into your pocket, where's the best, what is the best way that they can support you, Heather, the family, the Dark Horse Project? Well, here's another piece of information for you. I actually do not pay close attention to the various places that we earn. I know that will sound strange to some people, but I think it's important actually to avoid, you know, audience capture and the like. We certainly, Heather and I both have Patreons. Uh, in particular on my Patreon, I have two monthly discussions that I hold with two different groups of people. I know that people in those uh, discussions. Many of them have been there for years that this is something people look forward to and they really enjoy it and uh, get a lot out of it. That's, uh, that's one way to help us. But I also think, you know, it isn't about money. It is in some sense, even more important that people learn how to stand up at the level wherever they are, whatever their vulnerability is, there's some level that you can afford to stand up, right? You can put a clip into the world. You can take a clip from Dark Horse and you can say, you know what? 
I don't think this is nonsense. I think this is important. And I think the fact that this disagrees with the narrative that is driving policy is significant, right? We need to protect people who are ready to say these things in public. We need to talk about what the implications of these things are. So um, yeah, it's lovely if people support us. It means the world to us, but it's also, it, it is about something much bigger than money. And that has to do with keeping dissident voices um, safe from a force that is clearly working to, to create a hermetically sealed narrative that is good for none of us. Amazing. Well, before we wrap this up, I just noticed one question that somebody asked in, uh, in our newsletter that I don't actually know anything about. Have you heard anything about the University of Austin, the, quote, free speech university I have in front of me here? Is that something that you think is any solution? Or as you mentioned before with these new platforms, is that not the solution? Well, let's just say I'm very hopeful about such efforts. Heather and I were involved in an effort to put together a 2.0 higher ed project. That, that project is on pause. Um, Heather, because she's involved in the University of Austin, you know, I'm not, I don't want to, I don't want to say too much because I am rooting for the University of Austin. But I will say, I think that there's a hazard which is that those who now are aware that something has gone terribly wrong in higher ed are not really aware of what went wrong. They're aware of a symptom, which is glaring, which is the woke revolution, which has disrupted the capacity of the university to teach even basic biological truths, for example. Um, but if you were to take wokeism out of the equation, if you were to simply remove it from the universities, they would not be healthy at all. In fact, it is the vulnerability, the effectively an, an autoimmune disorder that took over the academy that made it vulnerable to wokeism. So if you don't cure the disorder, curing the wokeism is a very temporary solution to a small part of the problem. And so with efforts like University of Austin, I sincerely hope that they can look past the glaring failures that have come from the woke revolution and look to the deeper rot inside the academy because that's really the problem they have to solve. The last question, um, you must have answered this twice now, but let's see if it's changed. What makes life worth living right now for Brett Weinstein? Well, that's an easy one. That's an easy one because as dire as things are, and I must tell you, there's a lot, uh, there's a lot that is not right in the world and um, we have a lot of work to do. It does mean that there is plenty to do, right? The amount of meaning available and the amount of useful work to be done for anyone who can figure out what to do is great. And I will say we, Heather and I have been lucky that our trajectory has put us in a position to do useful work and we can take our evolutionary toolkit and we can deploy it over problems that it says unique things about. And amazingly enough, there's a large audience ready to, to listen. So I, I must say it's not uh, the most joyous moment, 
but it is it is certainly um, full of significance and and meaning. Amazing. Well, we've mentioned Dark Horse. We've mentioned the book. For anyone listening right now who's not familiar with where to find you, where can they find more from yourself, the book? Where can they reach you? Well, uh, the book is Hunter Gatherer's Guide to the 21st Century, which is it was not available for a long time. It sold out almost immediately. Um, but anyway, it's available now. It's available as an audio book too. It's available in, in Britain. Um, we are on Twitter. Uh, I am at Brett Weinstein. Brett has one T. There is a Brett Weinstein with two T's and he gets a lot of the vitriol that's supposed to be directed <laughs> at me. So I apologize to him. Um, but yeah, Twitter is a good place to find announcements of things. Uh, Dark Horse, we do a live stream usually every Saturday at 1230 Pacific time. It then stays online and uh, can be pulled off any podcast app i think those are probably probably the best places well brett thank you so much for joining me again it's been an absolute pleasure um we're setting records here i love it thank you for for your time i appreciate it as always and i hope we get to do this again in the not too distant future sir well thanks for having me and uh we'll see you at hanukkah or christmas next year maybe (laughs) well that wraps up this episode of the freedom pact podcast before you go just one final Reminder, one little bit of housekeeping. If you enjoyed this episode, please, please consider leaving us a five-star rating and review on iTunes or Spotify. It genuinely takes about five to ten seconds and it helps us out so much. So we would really appreciate if you could do that. Also, come and join us on YouTube where all these episodes are available in video format, as well as highlights, clips, and best bits. There's a lot more of exclusive content that appears on the YouTube channel. So you may want to consider checking us out at youtube.com forward slash Freedom Pact. We also produce a healthy, wealthy and wise newsletter. There's no spam, there's no marketing, don't worry about that. It's simply a newsletter where either Joe or myself will write about our favorite things that we learned that week through podcasts, books, articles, research in the topics of health, wealth and wisdom we also recommend a book of the week and ask you guys a question of the week so please consider checking us out and joining the newsletter at freedompact.co.uk forward slash newsletter it's completely free and takes a couple of seconds to join so hopefully we'll see you there and hopefully i'll see you back here again wherever you're listening on next week's episode of the freedom pack podcast